Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I just wanted to tell you that the following interview originally appeared on Counterpoint with Jonathan Judakin, which is broadcast on WKNO-FM. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Counterpoint. I'm Jonathan Judakin. With me today is Harvard professor Robert Darnton, a world-renowned expert on 18th-century France, the Enlightenment, and the history of the book. Darton left his position at Princeton to become head librarian at Harvard, and of late he's been writing as much about the future of books and libraries as about their past. On Thursday, October 10th at 6 o'clock, Darton will give a public lecture at University of Memphis's UC Theater titled Digitize and Democratize, Libraries, Books, and the Digital Future and he'll participate in the Pierce Shakespeare Foundation Symposium on the past and future of the book at Rhodes College on Friday, October 11th, starting at 9 a.m. Robert Darnton, I'm delighted to have you on CounterPoint today to talk about books and libraries in a digital age. Thank you for inviting me. Robert, you've been one of the prime movers behind the recently launched Digital Public Library of America. In a recent article in the New York Review of Books announcing its launch, you wrote, Jefferson and Franklin the champion of the Library of Congress and the printer-turned-philosopher-statesman, shared a profound belief that the health of the republic depended on the free flow of ideas. Thanks to the Internet and a pervasive, if imperfect, system of education, we can now realize the dream of Jefferson and Franklin. We have the technological and economic resources to make all the collections of all of our libraries accessible to all our fellow citizens and to everyone everywhere with access to the World Wide Web. This is the mission of the DPLA. Now, this really sounds amazing. Tell us more about the Digital Public Library of America, how it came about, why it addresses some of the problems of Google's much-touted digitization project, and how it's going to put this vision into action. Well, that is a very big question. Maybe I could begin by explaining how the Digital Public Library of America, the DPLA as we call it for short, first came into existence. It doesn't have a long history. It actually began October 1st, 2010, when I invited a group of heads of foundations, heads of libraries, some computer scientists to a small meeting. There were about 40 people in order to discuss the possibility possibility of creating a new kind of library, a library that we at first called a national library, but one that, unlike the Library of Congress, would exist entirely online and that would be accessible to absolutely everyone free of charge. At the time, it sounded grand, a little bit extravagant or utopian, but after about 30 minutes of discussion, we all said, this is a great idea, we can make it happen. So we began to get organized. We created a secretariat at the Berkman Center located in the law school of Harvard University, where they have all kinds of smart lawyers, but especially terrific technicians, people who are experts at creating technological infrastructure and very creative thinkers. 
They set to work on the technological side of things. We then appointed six committees scattered all over the country to deal with questions such as, what would the organization be? What form would it take? What kind of publics did we have in view? What sort of content would we develop? What would the legal problems be? Because they are formidable, and we might discuss that in a minute. And what sort of business plan would we have? So there were lots of issues to be addressed. And we did this not just as a special project at Harvard, but really as a national effort. I think at the outset, some people got the wrong idea. I mean, they thought of this as an elitist type of enterprise that would be great for college professors, people at Harvard and other such institutions, but that wouldn't be important for everyone in the country. That's not at all what we had in mind. We really are trying to create a digital library with all of the books in all of the research libraries of this country that would serve the a very broad public. And in fact, I should talk about publics in the, in the plural because there is no single public in this country. There are groups of people with particular interests scattered everywhere. So we imagine the DPLA as appealing to students from K through 12 and then through college into graduate school, but also older folks in retirement homes or ordinary people who just want to deepen their enjoyment of literature or people scattered everywhere who have a special project. You know, it might be a history of their local community or town or family. There are millions of people in this country who are interested in information but don't have access to it. So that was the purpose. We spent a lot of time working on the technical side of things. We had, for example, an open competition for projects that would make it possible to integrate the digitized collections in research libraries everywhere. This competition took place in the summer of 2010, and there was no prize, really, no money involved, just uh, an open invitation for people to come up with bright ideas. And believe it or not, we had 60 people who worked on the sort of technology that would go into the DPLA. A blue ribbon panel selected the three best suggestions. They were then incorporated in a protocol that was being developed by the computer engineers at Harvard. That was subjected to still more study. A new one was developed out of the old one. We spent years really coming up with a, an infrastructure that would work. I can't go into the technicalities of it all, but it was uh, really quite a feat. So when the DPLA actually went online last April 18th, it worked. Everything held up. The infrastructure proved to be excellent. We've been tinkering with it slightly ever since. But the DPLA is now up and running. And so I could say that what was a kind of bright idea, just a gleam in our collective eye way back in October 2010, is now a functioning digital library open to everyone, perfectly free, and already it has 4.5 million objects, mainly books, available to the public. It's growing at a rapid pace, and I think so far it's a success story. 
it sounds really incredible. And of course, I encourage people to go to the DPLA website, but let's talk a little bit about some of the problems. First of all, let's talk about some of the legal problems that you mentioned. They're partly at least connected to copyright, and this is where Google's digitization project also ran aground. So talk a little bit about how this came out of some of your concerns about Google's digitization project and some of the ways in which these legal problems will continue to be an issue in bringing all of the materials in libraries all over the United States and indeed globally through this porthole that the DPLA is. This really is the crucial question. As I explained, we have solved the technological problems. They were big problems, but they admitted to solutions, and that is working. However, the legal problems are much more formidable. Most people don't understand how extensive our current copyright laws are. Actually, when copyright was first created in this country in 1790, books were covered for 14 years with 14 more years as a possible renewal date. So 28 years total. Today, copyright covers books for the life of the author plus 70 years. And that means in practice that most books are covered by copyright for more than a century. In fact, it turns out that every book published after 1964 in this country is covered by copyright. Most books published after 1923 are covered by copyright, and there even are some books, believe it or not, that were published as far ago as 1873 that are still, for technical reasons, covered by copyright. And that means that the DPLA cannot make available to readers most of the literature produced in the 20th century. How are we going to deal with that problem? Of course, we will obey the law, we will respect copyright, but we think we have ways of dealing with it and ways that will work for the DPLA, but that did not work for Google. You've written so eloquently about what some of the possibilities of Google are, but also some of the real limitations to their approach to digitization. Yes, well, I admit I'm an admirer of Google. I've got to know them. I've been to meetings. They're full of young people who have a great deal of energy, new ideas, tremendous talent. They have, of course, deep pockets, but they also have visionary ideas. So when Google first announced its intention to digitize, as they put it, all the books in existence way back in 2004, I was thrilled. I thought, wow, this is something simply staggering, and it will be a great benefit to readers everywhere. I'm a book lover and a reader, like many of your listeners. So I was thrilled. However, it didn't exactly turn out that way. First of all, Google came to Harvard. We have the largest uh, university library in the world, the largest by far, about 17 million volumes. And Google said, may we digitize your books? We said, yes, we won't charge you anything. And in fact, Google went ahead digitizing away. They digitized about 850,000 books at Harvard. They also went to the University of Michigan, Stanford, the University of California, In the case of the other libraries, they digitized everything they could get their hands on. But at Harvard, we said, you're welcome to digitize books in the public domain, but not books covered by copyright, because we thought that that would be an infringement of copyright, even to digitize them and make them available as a search service. 
So this enterprise, which is called Google Book Search, actually began as a search service. You, the user, would type in a word or an idea that you were interested in, and Google would show you where that word appeared in a particular book and give you one or two sentences, which they called excerpts, to indicate the context. Now, to the copyright owners doing that, just having a few sentences from a digitized version of a copyrighted book was an infringement of copyright. So they sued Google, and as often happens in these corporate lawsuits, they went into secret sessions to negotiate a settlement. That took uh, almost three years, and at the end they came out with something they called a settlement, but something that was entirely different from what Google originally set out to do. It transformed the search service into a commercial library. So Google and the plaintiffs who had sued it set up a gigantic database filled with the digital copies of all of these books, and then they proposed to charge libraries for subscription to the database. So we in the libraries were now being asked to pay for access to our own books, which we had made available free of charge to Google, and to pay at a subscription price that Google would determine with the plaintiffs and that could escalate out of control. It could be a disaster for the world of libraries where we have suffered from the similar escalation in the price of journals. They are wildly expensive. So it seemed to me that this represented the commercialization of access to knowledge and that this was not in the public interest at all. So I actually published some articles making this argument, and many people sent amicus court briefs to the federal district court in New York, which had to approve of the settlement. The court finally pronounced that the settlement did violate the Sherman Antitrust Acts. It was, in fact, a monopoly, a monopoly of a new kind, a monopoly of access to knowledge in digital form. And therefore, Google Book Search is dead. It's not going to happen. Google, of course, still has its database and it can make use of it. For example, it can sell digitized versions of books with the accord of the publishers. And so it's a commercial retailing operation, if you like, something like Amazon. But it's no longer going to be a library. Meanwhile, though, we had been developing the DPLA, and of course what we aimed to do was something entirely different, to create a library for the public, free of charge, a non-commercial library. However, we still face the same problem of copyright. What can we do about it? Well, several things. The 1976 Copyright Act has a provision clause about fair use. Now, fair use means that a book can be made accessible in digital form to readers without the permission of the copyright owner for certain uses. One that has been established for many years is to help the visually impaired. So people who need magnified versions of texts can consult them without the permission of the copyright owners. You can use the books for certain pedagogical purposes. Beyond that, there is in the law a concern for what is called market damage. In other words, if a book is no longer selling, 
and you make it available digitally to the public, the owner of the copyright doesn't suffer any damage because there is no longer any demand for that book. Its commercial feasibility has been exhausted. So that's a possibility, although it's not clear that it will stand up in law. I could go on and on. I don't want to sound like a law professor, but the point is that there are cases in various courts throughout this country that are testing the limits of fair use. And I think the courts are coming around to the understanding that this will be something very good for the public in general and it will not hurt the interests of the copyright owners. But we have another plan as well, and that is something called the Authors Alliance, which we are going to launch very soon. The point of that is to get authors to voluntarily make available their books to the DPLA so that it can distribute them. Now, that may sound naive. You know, what author would want to give up his royalties just out of the goodness of his heart? But I don't think it's naive because, in fact, most books have a commercial life, believe it or not, of only a few weeks, a few months in many cases, very rarely more than a year or two. Books simply cease to sell. Now, bestsellers continue for a while, and a few famous authors manage, fortunately, to write books that continue to sell for many years. But the overwhelming majority of books stop selling after a short time. I want to talk a little bit about some of the other potential problems. A month after your article discussing the launch of the Digital Public Library of America, there was an article in the New York Times partially titled, Nation's Library Treads Water about the budgetary crisis faced by the Library of Congress given sequestration and budget cuts. Budget cuts for libraries across the nation have been impacting libraries, including the Memphis Public Library and particularly our only local research library housed at the University of Memphis, which have been underfunded for years. Don't you worry that a side effect of the Digital Public Library of America will be that politicians who are keen to cut public services will just say that given the wonders of the Internet, you can now find everything online, so why do we need to invest in libraries? What would you say to local, city, and county politicians, to state politicians, to federal politicians about why they should continue to create sustainable infrastructure for funding at libraries locally? Well, the first thing I would say is that libraries are just about the most vital institution of our democracy. I mean, I think the Memphis Library has got to be a key institution within that community, and I'm rooting for the Memphis Library. I hope that its budget will actually expand rather than be cut. And I would say that about all public libraries. In fact, I'm a trustee of the New York City Public Library, and I'm a great believer in it. So first of all, I would say to this hypothetical politician, listen, libraries matter. They matter to your communities, and they matter in ways that you may not understand. For example, the unemployed can no longer look for jobs by reading want ads in newspapers because the want ads have emigrated onto the web. 
So if you're unemployed and you don't have a computer at home, don't even know how to use the web, you go to your local library. And libraries all over the country are full of people looking for work and using the computers available in the libraries with the help of the librarians who show them how to negotiate through the web and find the information they need. So I'm a great believer, not just for this reason, but for many reasons, in public libraries. Second point I would make to this hypothetical politician is you should actually increase the budget for your local library. Don't think the DPLA is in the slightest way a substitute for it. Why is that? Well, the DPLA is not going to make available current books bestsellers, magazines, videos, CDs, the kind of things that people go to their local libraries in order to consult. The DPLA is going to make available the overall cultural heritage of this country. In fact, I'm proposing that the DPLA have what I call a moving wall so that books published within, let's say, the last 10 years would not be made available on the DPLA, but books published beyond 10 years would, and each year the limit would move up one year, so that the DPLA's offerings would stay out of the commercial marketplace and would not be a threat at all to the publishers, the, the authors, and certainly not to the local libraries. In fact, you write in the case for books that libraries were never warehouses of books. They've always been and always will be centers of learning. I'm Jonathan Judakin, and you're listening to CounterPoint. With me today is Robert Darnton, one of the great scholars of the history of the book and the head of Harvard's libraries. On Thursday, October 10th at 6 o'clock, Darnton will give a public lecture at University of Memphis titled Digitize and Democratize, Libraries, Books, and the Digital Future. And he'll participate in the Pierce Shakespeare Foundation Symposium on the Past and Future of the Book at Rhodes College on Friday, October 11th, starting at 9. So, Robert, we've talked about the need to continue to invest in libraries and why that's important. What about the continued need to invest in physical books in the age of digitization? You write in the case for books, the conventional book has been pronounced dead so often that many of us have stopped worrying about the threat of empty shelves. But there are actually a lot of us who still continue to worry, and you say a lot about why you think the book will be around for a long time and why we should continue to invest in books. Tell us a little bit about why you think that's the case, why you say the book has extraordinary staying power, but then tell us also a little bit about the ways in which digitization actually has impacted libraries' abilities to continue to purchase books and how this comes to impact new research. Well, please don't get me wrong. I'm an enthusiast about the digital future. In fact, I've published a lot of digital material myself and am now completing a totally digitized book. I think digital books, e-books, and so on open up enormous possibilities. But that said, I think it's important to explain to people that the classical printed book is doing very well, thank you. To say the publication industry is booming, maybe that might be going too far, but more books are published in print every year than the year before. There were 350,000 new titles in print published last year, and that was a 6% increase over the previous year. So books are continuing to be published and read 
it's a thriving industry. It's not about to disappear. I think that people misunderstand the current situation. They imagine that there is some kind of technological spectrum in which you've got the printed book, the analog on one extreme, and the digital book on the other, and that they are at war with one another. In actual fact, I think they are complementary. And what is now happening is a transformation of the whole information ecology so that the printed word coexists with the digital word, and this is good for both of them. In fact, the world of books is expanding. It's becoming more complex, richer, and larger. That means that people have a choice of reading books on handheld devices, electronic books. They can also often print those books out and read them in printed form, or they can go to a bookstore and buy them. They can move back and forth between these two technologies, and that strikes me as all to the good. For example, you might feel that you're going on a vacation and you would like to bring 10 books with you to read on the beach. Well, that's a lot of weight in your suitcase, of course, so it makes sense to download them onto a handheld device of some kind and to read them that way. Whereas you might prefer when it comes to a more complex book, a deeper book, one that could be fiction or nonfiction, but that will require continuous concentration as you read, that you might prefer to read on paper as I do. And if you own it, you might want to scribble ideas in the margins to underline things. And you might enjoy the sensation of moving back and forth in the book as you thumb through it. Well, you can't really do that effectively on an electronic book. And one of the things that you talk about is actually how remarkable the technology of books is. They've become such natural objects in our environment. We don't think of them as a form of technology. In your chapter in The Case for Books, A Pay-In to Paper, you actually bemoan the demise of the newspaper, along with weekly and monthly news magazines, which are undergoing an enormous crisis. So if the book publishing industry is booming, newspapers are not doing very well. And this is what you write. News now appears online, often in short messages, exchanged among non-professionals acting as reporters. It used to be written for the general reader. Now it is written by the general reader. And the chapter is really all about the massive destruction of the repositories of newspapers of the past in the process of their transformation to microfilm which it turns out is not quite as reliably preserved as paper. Robert, you take this as a case study for the problems of digitization, stating digitization as performed in Google Book Search can be every bit as faulty as microfilming was four decades ago. Recount this for us a little bit as a cautionary tale and what it means about the future of physical books and publishing in paper. Well, it's a complex story, and it's, I'm afraid to say, a sad story. Newspapers are suffering, and the economics certainly are not favorable. So I would say that the newspaper industry is hurting. It's undergoing a transformation that is quite different from and distinct from the world of the printed book. Why is this? Well, people now have smartphones, handheld devices of all kinds that give them instant, up-to-date information. They prefer this to the morning newspaper or the evening newspaper. And as I said, 
the want ads, the advertising, which had been the economic backbone of newspapers, has now not totally disappeared, but it's moved online. So newspapers face enormous economic difficulties. I think there will always be a few great quality newspapers like the New York Times, but there is a real threat, I think, to regional and local newspapers, although I'm hoping that the really local newspapers that fascinate people will continue to satisfy a particular demand. The fact is, though, that the great age of newspapers is over, that news is now moving onto the World Wide Web, And therefore, it takes a different form. I mean, you don't have professional reporters who have spent lifetimes getting at news sources, finding out what's really happening, digging things up, doing investigative reporting, which is the kind of reporting that is suffering most. You know, I don't mean to sound like a Jeremiah, a prophet of doom, but I think that the way we get our news is undergoing a very great transformation. And this is something that somehow the United States has got to face and solve. Let's put this into perspective then, Robert, by returning to your academic career and where it began back in the 18th century Enlightenment. Since so much of what you have worked on is about the creation, dissemination, and reception of the values that we inherit from the Enlightenment by tracing the history of books in the 18th century. What you've worked on in these last years, I see, is really the continuation of that Enlightenment program. Can you connect these links for us? How is your vision of books and libraries in the 21st century related to the vision of the philosophes, the Enlighteners in the Age of Enlightenment? And do you believe, like Immanuel Kant writing in his famous response to the question, what is Enlightenment, that if we actually get this right, we can enter an enlightened age? I do believe it. I'm happy to side with Kant. He's very good company. I admit, although I've spent years studying the critique of pure reason, that I don't totally understand it. Some of it flies over my head. I'm an historian, not a philosopher. But the kind of history that I have seeked to develop in my own research over now 50 years deals with the question of how ideas actually penetrated into society. How do ideas circulate? How do they produce effects? What are those effects? How do people take in the messages of books and develop opinions of their own, which eventually become public opinion and have effects on action, on history? For example, how did the Enlightenment connect with the French Revolution? Or how did the founding fathers in the United States deal with the ideas that surrounded them and interpret them in the form of the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, etc.? One thing that I think you see everywhere in the thought of the Enlightenment philosophers, Kant included, is the conviction that truth will out. That is to say, you need a running debate about questions, whether they're philosophical or political or moral, questions of all kinds. And it's out of this debate that the intelligent, fair-minded citizen will form an opinion. Now, it's true that opinions can be swayed by demagogues, by appeals to lower instincts, But the philosophers believed that these reactions, this kind of demagogic effect, would not be long-lasting, would be corrected by an open debate. 
The difficulty at the time of Benjamin Franklin, who, after all, began life as a printer, or Jefferson, who, as I mentioned, was really the greatest force behind the Library of Congress, gave his library, after the British burned it in 1812, to the Congress and the people of the United States. Franklin and Jefferson believed that people needed to be informed by the only medium of the day that was capable of that service, namely the printing press. Well, at that time, the levels of literacy were really quite low. They varied a lot. People were more literate in New England than they were in the South. Men tended to have a higher rate of literacy than women. We've done lots of studies and discovered that the country at the time of the revolution was certainly not perfectly literate. And in fact, those who could read often couldn't afford to buy books. So at the time of the founding fathers in this country and the Enlightenment philosophers in Europe, the printing press was a force for change and for enlightenment, but it had a limited range. Today, with the Internet, with modern technology, information can reach into everyone's home, in fact, into everyone's pocket. So I think, really, we now have the possibility of realizing something that was just a utopian dream on the part of the philosophers of the 18th century and the people who founded our own republic. Let me close with a quote from The Case for Books. Already we're witnessing the disappearance of familiar objects, the typewriter, the postcard, the handwritten letter, the daily newspaper, the local bookshop. You continue interrogatively, and the library? It can look like the most archaic institution of all, yet its past bodes well for its future. Their central position in the world of learning makes them ideally suited to mediate between the printed and the digital modes of communication. Books, too, can accommodate both modes. But as you've explained, the library and the book are under some stress, and we've got to preserve these aspects of the res publica if we're going to preserve the republic as our founders, Franklin and Jefferson, envisioned it. So, Robert Darnton, thanks so much for being with us today on CounterPoint and explaining why that's the case. Thank you for inviting me. putting a spotlight on the role of scholars, academics, and intellectuals, and how their work illuminates the issues we face locally and globally, CounterPoint is a monthly broadcast on WKNO-FM. To listen to this show in its entirety, visit WKNOFM.org and click on the news menu item where you'll find a link to CounterPoint. You can podcast CounterPoint by visiting iTunes and searching for WKNO CounterPoint. CounterPoint is a production of WKNO-FM in association with the Spence L. Wilson Chair in Humanities at Rhodes College. Justin Willingham produces the show. I'm Jonathan Judakin. Thanks for listening.